Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. CNN is fake news. Don't talk to me. Go ahead, please. Fake news is the news. Or is the news fake? A viral fake picture followed by a real dip in the markets Monday. Could fake news be the real news? Pro-Russia social media accounts are using false claims about so-called crisis actors to try to get people to doubt the credibility of important, accurate media reporting. Is there really a clear distinction? Or are we all being deliberately confused? Years, but not many years away from a situation now where we can create uh, pretty sort of realistic um, environments for people, but we can also do things like manipulate their voices and manipulate their facial expressions in real time. We've been talking about fake news on the Bell Tell in recent weeks. It's time, I think, for some expert opinion. But of course, some of you are saying... I don't believe the experts. I do think we have a problem in our current society um, with what we might call information disorder. And information disorder is a situation where people perhaps don't care as much about the extent to which things can be trusted. Julian McDougall is a professor in media and education at Bournemouth University. He's written extensively on the issue of fake news and how education can fight the issue. He joins me on the line. Julian, you're very welcome to the Belltale. Thank you for the invite and great to be here. What is fake news? Oh, well, I knew you would ask me that first and it's it's really complicated, but I'll try to be as brief and succinct as I can be. It's a label I wouldn't necessarily use, ironically, because I've written about it. Um, the book I wrote about it was subtitled Travels in a False Binary. And that was to signal that really, if we start to think about true versus fake in this kind of binary opposition, we do miss um, some of the complexities that you alluded to in your introduction. So I prefer to think of it as a continuum. Um, of course, no one's going to say that there are not things which are objectively true. And we, we don't want to live in a, a crazy society where we no longer have any sense of you know the truth versus falsity. But of course, a lot of the time we do find patterns and we do react with emotion and with some level of innate bias to all the information that we receive. So I think false or fake is a, is a, a false binary, but I do think we have a problem in our current society with what we might call information disorder. And information disorder is a situation where people perhaps don't care as much as they used to or don't care as much as we would hope they would about the extent to which things can be trusted. So that, I think, is the problem. Not so much whether things are fake or false, but the extent to which the public any longer 
care as much as we might like about the, the, the credibility of information. I wonder, but is this a new thing? Because, I mean, we have a saying in Ireland, you know, a woman told me that this other woman told her. And you know that it's a that, that it's a rumour. And uh, I've worked as a journalist for quite a few years now. And, you know, even before Twitter and stuff, like people would come up to me in the street and just tell me a porky. So absolutely, it's not new. And, um, you know, there are histories of fake news that have been written and they start with, you know, hieroglyphics. And so as long as human beings have been telling each other stories, um, they've told each other stories in ways which are more or less persuasive. Sometimes that's just I'm going to represent the reality out there from the point of view I'd like you to believe in. And sometimes it's, of course, deliberately misleading and sometimes it's outright, you know, a lie. Um, and I would also say that professional journalism um, is always, you don't need me to tell you this, but always presenting the news information, you know, through particular kinds of editorial agendas as well. Um, so in response to the question, is it anything new? No. Um, but I think what's new, of course, is the Internet and a kind of perfect storm, if you like, of um, rapid information overload, um, incredibly quick fire responses. And of course, the way that all of us as citizens can be experts in anything 24-7, you know, within seconds. These things are new and they provide a new and potentially uh, serious and dangerous context for what's been around for a very, very long time. This war is being fought on the digital battleground too. It is flush with misinformation and this is not a first. Fake stories and photos are circulating on social media sites, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, X, you name it, and they have fake news. This concept, evidence and facts and truth, they may be very philosophically differentiated, uh, in academia and they may be for other professions very differentiated in terms of in terms of how we do our business but I suppose for the untrained for the public these concepts mightn't be as differentiated as as it is for us and you know what maybe the public's right well I, I yeah I, I, it's interesting I think there's a I'm torn between two positions on this um, I'm torn between the position I you know articulated a little bit a few moments ago which is we should look at all news as potentially fake news or all information all all media everything that you read see here is coming at you from a particular point of view and you need to be media literate which means you need to be healthily skeptical about everything so the first thing i did when i got your invite was you know obviously did a little bit of background uh research on your podcast and your newspaper spoke to a couple of colleagues in my faculty who are ex-journalists you know just got a sense of who you are and what kind of newspaper you are and of course all perfectly fine you know and i recognize that this is professional journalism the sphere I'm, I'm, I'm talking to today which is incredibly different to certain other podcasts which you might speak to so that's a level of uh, healthy critical literacy around media that you know I, I have but i agree with you that i think lots of the general public may not have and i do think it matters more now than ever so so 10, 15 years ago, I may have answered this question differently and said, you know, perhaps we shouldn't be putting professional journalism on a pedestal. Perhaps we should be very uh, excited by the democratic impulses of the Internet where anyone can be a citizen journalist. Now, I think probably more important than ever that we have professional journalists working to codes of practice, working to ethical guidelines, and, and we have public interest media um, to counter you know, what I would describe now as a kind of pollution pollution of the information environment by negative agents in that space. 
And the scepticism, I think we all agree, or we should all agree, that that's a healthy thing. I mean, there are societies in, in the world which involve absolute truths, which you're obliged to believe in. Saudi Arabia and North Korea come to mind, although I'm sure somebody will, will contact me supporting either regime. But anyway, when does that scepticism become a radical scepticism in that you just simply don't believe anything? And at the same time, I think as Hannah Arendt said, the masses believe nothing and that simultaneously this, they believe absolutely everything. The, that you've gone right, right to the paradox at the heart of all the work we do. So in the research centre I work in at the university, we do a lot of work with media literacy. And there is now an argument that too much lead, media literacy leads to complete distrust in all information and, and the scepticism, you know, crosses over that threshold as you've described it. Um, and I think there needs to be a retreat from that because we are in a space now where there is there is some serious undermining of um, you know public interest media and um, professional journalism and kind of objective credible information. So that we'll probably come on in the conversation to responses to education. But um, at this point, I would say one thing that has clearly happened. I think whatever your politics are, you'd have to agree that in the West, global North, developed world, uh, Europe, UK. United States, we do have elite and powerful people um, who who we would have to say are complicit in this arena of confusion and uncertainty around truth. Of course, the obvious example is, you know, the, the ex-president of the United States, his team saying that they had their alternative facts. You did yes, not answer did. the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, on day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains... Alternative facts? Alternative facts for... The demonization of mainstream media which started, of course, with Trump, but has recently happened more here as well, I think. Um, we hear that term now being used a lot by some of our current politicians. And even, I think, to the point where there are certain political communication strategies, which I think are playing into this, um, this, the, the, this landscape we're in, where people are finding it much harder to trust authoritative communication. I mean, we mentioned Trump, but I mean, this scepticism and this, this the, the term mainstream media, I mean, many people on the left will also totally disengage with what they describe as mainstream media. I mean, I have people contacting me, very well-educated people, people who would consider themselves on the left, and they would say things like, they literally don't believe anything they hear about the Ukraine war, for example. They, they would tell me, you know, well-educated people, that they only read alternative news now. And whether it's the war, COVID or something, that's prompted them to abandon all mainstream media and to go down a different path. Like, so there are big, I mean, it's across the board, really. I agree with you entirely. And I think it's very difficult to answer your question in a succinct way because we could argue that some of the academic and theoretical positions that have been taken, including by people like myself from the kind of cultural studies world, I mean, I don't want to get too nostalgic, we go back to the kind of Glasgow media group work in the 80s, when you're looking at the way that Hillsborough and the miners' strike um, were reported by the mainstream press, right? That, that tradition from the left, you're absolutely right, has always been there. Um, but I would say that some of the theoretical ideas around 
truth claims and deconstruction of um, supposedly impartial information have really been hijacked by, you know, conspiratorial groups by the by the far right, for example. And that's quite dangerous. But the difference, of course, is um, whatever you think of those left leaning academic positions, they are informed by a robust, rigorous kind of methodological approach to how we look at the the agenda setting of news. So these are academic positions, and of course you would expect me to say this, but I think the, the distrust of experts, the distrust of academics, the distrust of scientists is one of the most dangerous elements of this kind of post-truth landscape. So my defence of those positions would, would be that they were peer-reviewed, um, well-constructed pieces of media research rather than, you know, a polemic posted online, you know, in the middle of the night without any um, due diligence. Why do people create fake news, Julian? Why do they do this? I mean, I wonder, do, do they know they're doing it even? Well, there's, I, there, there are different categories. Uh, uh, misinformation, malinformation, disinformation. And one of the things we do when we work with students and when we work with teachers on this is we, it's very important to, to understand the distinction between uh, unintended um, circulation of uh, information that isn't credible or may just not be true, and then fully intended, you know, whether that's conspiracy, propaganda, malinformation, disinformation, the kind of um, deliberate spreading of falsehood. Um, and I think it's important to say, so why do people do it? They do it for all kinds of reasons. Often it's for, you know, power. We, I, I don't want to make this too political, but we can't we can't um, extract the circulation of fake news or misinformation from an overarching capitalist system where People are interested in in making profit. It's hierarchical. There is a business model. You, you know, you will know as a professional journalist that often um, it's quite useful if people are following links on websites. So you might have very, very credible, professionally produced journalism, but then you might have all kinds of clickbait lower down the page because there's a business model that people have to make money. So it's never as distinct as you might think between professional journalism and those other kinds of things. So all kinds of reasons why people do it. If you're going to ask me why people believe it, I think sometimes people don't believe it, but they still like the sentiment. It, it, it resonates with their biases. It resonates with things they're upset about. Um, and I think but also we live in an, an era, kind of perfect storm of austerity. We had a pandemic, let's not forget, which was, you know, incredibly stressful time for most human beings on the planet. People have been vulnerable and frightened and in many cases poor. And of course, as we know from previous historical periods, when people have that level of precarity and vulnerability, they latch onto patterns, they latch onto uh, polarised ideas about who's the enemy, who's, who's the cause of this. I've learned a lot about the government, about the education system, about the banks, in fact, against the system as a whole. But I'm going to tell you what I believe, and I want you to just do your own research. Think, just think, because I believe that the government wants to control you, and I believe the system is wired for you and I to be poor. A variety of reasons why people create fake news, if you want to call it that, and a very complicated set of reasons why people either believe it or choose to accept it, whether they believe it or not. I'd like to ask you another question, and I think we have to be very careful with it, but I, I, I'm sure you're expecting this question. Is there a certain part of our society? Is, are there demographics that are more susceptible to believing fake news? Oh, yes. I mean, it's, it is, we have to be careful, but it is, there is research that proves that the people who are the most, as you might call, information poor, 
and often, but not always, but often the least educated in the formal sense, and often the most uh, socioeconomically challenged. Though that that those parts of our society are often uh, also the most vulnerable to fake news, because there's a level of I would call it media literacy, but a level of kind of uh, cultural capital around how we understand information that that one gets through a particular level of education and having a particular kind of environment around you where you are helped to understand information as being you know persuasive and wherever it comes from so there is a there is a, a clear relation there's a, a poly curtis talks about the great unused uh, term i might not necessarily use myself but there's you know there are huge portions of the population who are not consuming any mainstream media any um, um verified professional news at all and are receiving most of their information and forming most of their opinions from social media one thing we we, we should include in the conversation whether it was where you were going with it or not isn't is you know the response to this and what i find and of course i would say this given what i do for my job but i find it incredible in the uk that there's been such a um undermining and a kind of derision of media studies in education because there's a there's a policy discourse right now which is what if only there was something we could do to help young people in particular because they're the next generation and they're arguably the people that have grown up with this kind of um, online circulation of information and, and a, you know, potentially both at the most risk but also have the most opportunity to change it for the better if only there was something we could do and you know media studies is a school subject which encourages people to understand that every news story, every piece of entertainment, every piece of information could be constructed from three or four different positions, depending on ownership, editorial agenda, point of view, and to your point, reception, interpretation. So, you know, media studies teaches young people to understand that we interpret things based on our highly situated, you know, own experience. And once you understand that, the, the key thing to say is you're not necessarily going to care anymore. You're not necessarily going to start accessing different kinds of information. You might say, OK, I'm perfectly happy to get all my information from Facebook or I'm perfectly happy to understand the world from a very kind of narrow point of view in a kind of echo chamber, if you like. But at least I've been educated to understand that there are other points of view out there, other ways of interpreting this information or other ways of this information being presented. And I find it extraordinary that we're still in a place where in the UK, there's this there's this kind of cynicism around the idea of teaching people about media in the school curriculum. Um, at the same time, there's this huge panic about what are we going to do about all of these problems with fake news and misinformation. So my next question was, how, you know, how can a belief in fake news be combated? And I think you're going to say that media studies uh, and appreciation of media has a real role there. Yeah, I think there's three elements. Um, regulation is important. Um, you know, there's an online harms bill going through. There's every country in the world is desperately trying to regulate um, the internet in one way or another. Um, so regulation is crucial. Um, but regulation with education would be my um, would be my response to that question. And education is around that kind of more holistic critical thinking. So I, I'd like to distinguish between kind of giving a fish and teaching to fish. So there are lots of really good fact checking websites, lots of resources where you can actually respond to the problem by checking if something is true or not, kind of image reverse searching, um, all kinds of really good resources. But what they do is they kind of respond to the problem quickly, 
like you know giving a person a fish whereas teaching to fish is that kind of media education media literacy that we've been talking about today which then equips you to be more healthily skeptical and critical in the first place but I also think journalism is very very important and you know we are in danger you don't need me to tell you this the media and information ecosystem is now full of what i would call pollutants and public interest media professional journalism is is struggling isn't it to occupy a space in that ecosystem and i think young people in particular need to at least be made aware of the opportunities they have to access different kinds of media and information now we can't you know, I'm not talking about going into schools and encouraging everyone to read The Guardian or watch BBC or whatever it might be. That that won't work. But I do think there is an ignorance now among um, large sections of the population about um, where information is coming from and what options they have that they are currently not um, not taking advantage of. Whenever some people hear regulation, other people hear censorship. Yeah, I mean, you're not asking me easy questions today. I mean, yeah. And of course, if we start getting to the conversation about free speech, then you're going to have all kinds of um, complexities about how that term is also being used as well. Um, so there are red lines. OK, there is there is uh, there are behaviours online that are already illegal. And there are behaviours online that arguably should be regulated and restricted because they are clearly harmful to others and they go beyond, you know, the free speech arguments. Now, um, so I think censorship is slightly different because censorship is often about um, removing information or or, or texts or um, even entertainment after the event for ideological reasons. But I'm talking about regulation of you know clearly harmful practice where um, social media platforms should be doing more to take down or prevent or moderate um, content which is untrue to the point of causing harm. Or, of course, impacts on you know, children or safeguarding all those kinds of things. So I'm kind of drawing that distinction. I wouldn't use the word censorship uh, to describe what I'm talking about. The, the problem with the, trying to regulate the Internet, of course, is that the Internet is not nation state kind of um, you know, thing to control, is it? It's a global, very kind of fluid platform. So it's incredibly difficult. Uh, but I think that combination of regulation and education is what we're looking for. Again, we're back to this philosophical argument. What I consider a fact and what maybe the government of Sweden considers a fact and what the Chinese Communist Party considers a fact are just not the same things and, and never will be. So when we're trying to regulate something which is a global phenomenon... The internet, we know, was... I mean, it was never intended to be anything, but there was a sense when the when the internet happened that it would be a kind of digital commons. It would be a a democratic sphere for ordinary people to have access to incredible abundance of information and to collaborate and to share. And it was, you know, and, and lots of us, me included, got very excited with Web two as being this kind of huge democratizing thing. And as I said earlier, and, and we got we got overly optimistic about perhaps things that actually have led to the undermining of professional journalism. Everyone can be a journalist. Everybody can be an expert. Everybody it sounds very democratic when you think about it at the start of the process. And of course, now we're in a situation where that's kind of gone a little bit dark and then the need to kind of regulate that is much more complicated. But I think you cannot ignore whatever your politics are, the fact that this exists in a particular way of organising economics and society, you know, which is capitalist. And therefore there is, it's very difficult to regulate something which also perpetuates the flow of kind of market productivity as well. 
Um, and I think one of the challenges around regulation is that there's a, an elephant in the room, which is that every time we install a, a piece of technology in our homes, that helps us to, you know, whether it's a ring doorbell or whether it's Alexa or whether it's an AI bot of some description, you know, what's happening there is that you are allowing all of your personal data to go to third parties for the means of profit. Um, and that trade-off has never is never discussed enough, I don't think, in these kinds of conversations. In order to regulate and protect the public, you'd probably also need to do something about the politics and the economics. But that's a really big thing to start to get to get into. Professor Julian McDougall, uh, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. This episode of The Bell Tell was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, along with Olivia Peden. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from the BBC, CNN, Fox, Sky News and first to post. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.